Because of the Savers Church generosity, our church facility project is now fully funded. Gracias una vez más a la Iglesia Sellos Press por todo lo que han hecho. Que Dios les bendiga. Because of the Savers Church generosity, our church project is now fully funded. Queremos agradecerles, hermanos, por su doble generosidad, su doble amor. Esperamos que a partir de aquí muchas personas conozcan a Cristo. Because of the same watch, Chuck Generosity. And because of the same watch, Generosity. Because of the same short generosity, our church facility project is now fully founded. Is now fully founded. Is now fully founded. Thank you, Sagebrush. Thank you, Sagebrush. Thank you, Sagebrush. Thank you, Sagebrush. Gracias, Sagebrush, por todo lo que han hecho. For those of you who are brand new, we are uh, in the middle of an M1 capital campaign. It's a one-year capital campaign. We're giving above and beyond our normal tithes and offerings to fund 59 churches. We're building 59 churches in one year. And I want to thank you for your faithfulness and for your generosity. As you can see, it's already happening. And... Uh, Every time you give one of those dollars to that M1 campaign, it does not stay in a bank account. It immediately goes over to fully fund those projects. In the weeks ahead, I'm going to show you some walls that are actually coming up uh, for some of these church facilities. You have made a difference in the lives of these people. They are so excited. And when we can open up our mission trips again and we can go to these places and you can see these people and see what God has done through your generosity, I'm telling you there's just nothing better than that. Well, today we're continuing actually starting a brand new series called Identity Theft. So take a look at this. Identity theft. It was a somewhat foreign term 30 years ago, but today it's far too common. Picture it. Someone claims to be you, begins to spend your money, destroys your credit, and puts you in a deep financial hole. Before you know it, your loan to buy a house gets denied, and you have tons of red tape to fight your way out of. According to the consulting firm Javelin Strategy and Research, 13 million consumers fell victim to it in 2019, and it cost $3.5 billion in out-of-pocket expenses. But there are other forms of identity theft, Someone can claim to be you and get prescription drugs or other medical attention at your expense. They can make a counterfeit driver's license with your information and commit crimes as you. While these methods might be difficult for the average person to pull off, there is still another form of identity theft that has risen in popularity. It is fairly simple for some people to do and is more devastating than losing money. It's the identity theft of what social media can do to you. So let's talk about it. <laughs> I got to be honest with you, I'm not a fan of social media. I think I've made that clear over the years. But I don't care if you're into social media. I could care less. I mean, if you want to do the Facebook, if you're over the age of 60, you can go ahead and do that if you like. If you <laughs> want to do the Instagram and the TikTok and the Snappy Chatty and all those wonderful things, I don't care at all. You can post whatever you want to do. I, I didn't bother me at all. Here's the problem I've got with social media. It's what it does to people nowadays. We have found that people are identifying or they're finding their identity in what they post and how well their posts are doing. Now, stay with me 
for just a second. Let you put something together for social media, okay? You put a reel together, you have a picture together, you put a quote together, you put a saying together, and you think to yourself, this is going to go viral. This is going to be the greatest thing that I've ever put out before. I'm going to see a personal best of likes and favorites and shares like I've never seen before. And then you put it out there. And then what do you do? Well, if you're like the typical person who puts things out on social media, you kind of wait and watch. You wait and you watch to see how many people like it. You wait and watch to see how many people share it. You wait and watch to find out how many people are going to follow you. And if it starts to slow down, if all of a sudden people aren't liking your post, like, what's wrong with my post? I don't understand why people aren't liking my post. And then you start looking at who liked your post. And you say, well, I appreciate all those people who liked my post. But what about those people who didn't like my post? And then you start looking down at the people who didn't like your post. And you think to yourself, wait a second. I did not like that person's post last week. Now, that was a stupid post, but I liked it anyway because they're my friend. Why didn't they like my post back? And then you can finally get a comment on your post. You're like, oh, I got a comment on my post. So you open up the comment to see what was said. And it doesn't make any sense at all. And you're like, who in the world would write a comment like that? And then they put an emoji there at the very end. And that emoji doesn't even make sense to the comment they just put down. And you're like, what kind of person puts an emoji down with a comment like that? Some of you look at me like you don't know what an emoji is. (laughs) Do you see what's happening? We find ourselves with an adrenaline rush if the post is liked, if it's favorited, if it's shared. But if it doesn't do well, it takes a hit to our identity. It takes a hit to our self-esteem. And i got to ask you a question. Do you want to give that kind of power over your life to somebody else? Do you want to give that kind of power over your life to somebody else where you can turn from a hero to a zero in just a matter of seconds? I read this this past week. This woman got sick of her social media account, and she was tired of the fear of what other people think of her and how she had to put on a persona to make people believe something to be true about her that wasn't true. And it was absolutely exhausting and frustrating for her. So she wrote the following letter. Let me share it with you. Dear fear of what others think, I'm sick of you. And it's time we broke up. I know we've broken up and gotten back together many times, but seriously, fear of what others think, this is it. We're done. I'm tired of overthinking my status updates on Facebook, trying to sound more clever and funny and important. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do in public, especially around people I don't know that well, all in the hope that they'll like me, accept me, praise me. I run around all day feeling like a golden retriever with a full bladder. Like me, like me, like me, like me. Because of you, fear of what others think, I go through my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head. And I never, I never stop acting. Spotlight's always on. I'm center stage and I better keep dancing, posture and posing or else the spotlight will move. And I'm sure I'll dissolve into a little meaningless puddle on the ground like that witch in the Wizard of the Oz. I can never live up to the expectations of my imaginary audience. Let me read that again. I can never live up to the expectations of my imaginary audience, the one that lives only in my head but whose collective voice is louder than any other voice in the universe. So eat it fear of what others think. 
you and I are done. And no, I'm not interested in talking it through. I'm running, jumping, laughing you out of my life once and for all. Or at least that's what I really, really want. God help me. And that's what we find today. When you find your self-esteem, when you find your sense of significance based upon how many likes you get and how many followers you get and how people look at you and perceive you, you have lost your identity. But social media is not the only place where we lose our identity. We live in a culture that tries to make our identity less than what it really needs to be. We live in a culture where people care more about someone's appearance than they do about someone's character. This affects both men and women, both young and old. I read an interesting statistic this past week. Did you know that the average girl spends $1,800 on clothes a year? Some of the guys are thinking, that seems cheap to me, to be honest with you. It doesn't count purses and then shoes, okay, as that helps you out at all. Average girl spends $1,380 on makeup. On any given day, you ready for this one? I found this interesting. 25% of men, 45% of women start diets on any given day. Now, you would think after four days, everybody would be on a diet, but you and I both know that none of us last that long when it comes to a diet, right? 50% of girls said that they, would, they have changed their appearance because someone has criticized it. I think the other 50% were lying. 83% of women say they feel too much pressure to improve their appearance. They said they hate society, how society makes them feel about themselves. But 85% of women believe that beauty is power. So 83% say, I hate the way society paints us as women to look and to be. But 85% of women say, but beauty is power. Talk about a loss of identity. And it's not just women, it's also men. We go to the gym, we get the big muscles, we get the six-pack abs, and we hit midlife crisis, we got to get that sports car, got to get that biggest house. We want everybody to notice us, everybody to look at us. And we lose our identity along the way because we care more about what other people think of us than maybe even what God thinks of us. Dr. Charles Cooley, the Dean of American Sociology, said this about self-esteem. He said, our self-esteem is determined to a large degree by what we think the people or the persons that matter the most to us thinks about us. Whoever is the most important person in your life, whatever that person thinks of you is probably the way that you feel about yourself. So you understand the ramifications of this, that the most important person in your life is your mom or your dad, that you understand, parents, that your words and your encouragement means everything to your child because what you believe about them, what you say about them, what you inspire them, they will rise to that because you're the most important person in their life. You are shaping their identity. You're shaping their self-esteem. Of course, you also understand the power when you dog them, when you name-call them, when you nitpick them, what you're doing to that child. So if your boss or your coach is the most important person on the face of the earth in your life, well, guess what? Whatever they say of you, whatever they think of you, that's how you feel about yourself. Think about this. If it's your boyfriend or it's your girlfriend, if it's your uh, 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 spouse, 
then what they say about you, what they think of you, means more to you than anything else. And you will do whatever you have to do to make that other person proud of you, to make that person happy with you. Think about the friendship situation we have in, in the teenage years, in the 20-something years. Isn't it true that the kids that we hang around with, our kids hang around with, that we become like them? And why is that? Because their friends are the most important influence of their life. And somewhere along the way, we're so busy trying to please everybody else because we're so consumed with what everybody else thinks of us that we lose ourselves along the way. But what do we say to people all the time? We say, everything's fine. How you doing? I'm doing great. How you feeling? I feel great. If I was any better, I'd be twins. Everything's wonderful. Everything's fantastic. But truth be told, the truth is rarely told. And we come to church, and we act like we have it all together. We have the pretense. We have the look. We have the vocabulary. But inside, we're lost. Inside, we're confused. Inside, we're nervous. We don't know who we are. But we think to ourselves, if I can just keep up the act, I'll be okay. The band's going to sing a song about this, and then I'm going to come back, and we're going to talk about where true identity should come from. Listen to the words of this song. I'm not the one you're supposed to have it all together And when they ask how you're doing, just smile and tell them never better I'm number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours So keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors truth be told, the truth is really told. I say I'm fine, yeah I'm fine, oh I'm fine, hey I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken, and when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. And you know it, I don't know why it's so hard to admit it, when being honest is the only way to
So if the most important person in our life is the one who is molding us and shaping our self-esteem, that's the person that we want to please more than anybody else, well, maybe we should choose not to have it be social media. Maybe we shouldn't have it be what the society tells us is an attractive person, you know. And maybe we shouldn't even look to our parents to provide us the self-esteem or not even our, our spouse, not even our boss or our coworker or our friends. What if we tried something radical? What if we only cared about what Jesus thought of us? What if the most important thing that's ever happened in our life, which we say is a relationship with Jesus Christ, what if we allowed his relationship with us become the defining moment of our life to where we would see ourselves through his eyes? Now, here's the problem for some of us. You think if you did that, that he would look at you with great disappointment and with disdain, that all he would do is shake his head at you because you're nothing more than a big mess, you're nothing more than a big failure. Well, today I so desperately want you to get your identity in Jesus Christ. Because I remember as a young man and even times in my life, even to this day, it's easy to get sidetracked, isn't it? It's easy to let the opinion of someone else, someone says something about you, does something to you, and you start to fall apart as a result of that. It's easy to forget the truth of what Jesus says is about us and the most important thing that should identify us as individuals. So we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm hoping this next week that whenever you begin to start feeling insecure, whenever you start being worried about what everybody else is saying about you, whenever you feel like you're losing yourself, that you'll remember these three simple truths. Write this down if you're taking notes. The first thing I want you to get is this. We are chosen by God to have a relationship with Him. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now this one blows me away. God chose me. Do you remember when you were in elementary school and you looked forward to recess? Probably if you were a girl, you ran over to the jump ropes and you jump roped and you talked and you giggled and you gossiped. That's what the girls, I, at least I'm told that's what they did. Uh, the guys, on the other hand, we would run over to kickball field just as quickly as we could. At least we did in my school. And we would line up as fast as we could to get the game going. And then we'd pick a couple of guys to be captains, some of the best players that were there. And then we'd play the guess the number game, and they would pick which number. And whoever got closest to that number, they were the captain, and they got to pick first. Now, I was fortunate. I was a pretty athletic young man, so I was usually picked up in the upper spot. If I wasn't the captain, I was picking one, two, three, four, something like that. I never knew what it felt like to be picked all the way down at the bottom. And I didn't understand the damage that we were doing to those poor kids because it's just one thing to be picked at the bottom. There's another way in how we picked the bottom. You know, I remember being captain, and I picked this person, the other guy picked that person. We get all the way down to like two, three guys left. And like Billy was there and Jimmy was there. And I, I said, you want Billy or Jimmy? I don't care. They're both terrible. They're both going to make outs. You know, that's what's... Not realizing as a young child, you know, the damage I was doing. So Billy and Jimmy, I'm really sorry that we put you through that, okay? But you were bad. I'm just going to tell you that right now. I'm just kidding around. I never understood what it was like to be picked last until I was picked last. In my neighborhood, everybody was a little bit older than me, two, three, four years older than me. And there was a football field. We called it a football field. It was an abandoned lot. And we would run to that abandoned lot from time to time. We'd play tackle football. Man, we loved to play tackle football. Well, we'd line up just like we did in recess. And there would be a couple of captains. Of course, I never was picked as the captain because, my goodness, I'm three years younger than most of these guys. I'm about a foot shorter than all of them, about 30 pounds lighter. 
And so they would begin to pick back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then when we got to the very, very end, somebody would say, I'll I'll take Todd, which offended me, to be honest with you, because I was better than half of those guys. I'm just going to tell you that right now. One day we were at the football field, and my brother was picked to be the captain. Now, he'd been picked captain before. But on this particular day, I don't know what got into him, but he won the guess the number game, and he had first pick. And he looked at that line of boys standing there waiting to hear their name. And the first person he called out was me. He said, I'll take Todd. And immediately the rest of the guys couldn't believe it. Oh, you got to be kidding me. It's terrible. It's awful. You're going to waste your first pick on your brother. <laughs> and I remember walking in front of my brother and looking into his eyes and saying, Jeff, Don't waste your first pick on me. And I'll never forget what he did. He grabbed me by the arms and he firmly put me behind his back as if to say, you are on my team. I choose you. Never did that before. Never did that afterwards. (laughs) But that moment for an 11-year-old kid, that was a game changer for me. Because it was the first time that somebody saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. That was the beginning of great things for me. Friends, I want you to understand something. God chose you. And according to this passage of Scripture, when did he choose you? He chose you before the creation of the world. It's as if he looked out and he said, I choose Mark. And I choose Jim, and I choose uh, uh, Sharon. I, I, I choose you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to be on my team. Why did he choose us? Well, according to this passage of Scripture, so we would be holy and we would be blameless. What in the world does that mean? You ready for this? It means that we would be distinctive. He chose us so we would be the light of the world. We would be the salt of the earth. That people would see the difference that Jesus has made in our life. That we would carry ourselves differently. We'd find security in him. That we would choose differently. We have a different set of priorities. A different set of beliefs. He chose us so that this lost and dying world could find their way home. You are chosen by God. That's bigger than being chosen by somebody on your Facebook or Instagram page. Let me give you the next one. We're also adopted by God to be in his family. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, let me explain how radical this is. In Roman culture, when a baby was born, they would set the baby before the father who was sitting down. And they would place the child on the floor before the father. And then the father would decide whether he was going to accept the child into his family or not. So if he picked the child up, then he accepted the child to be a part of his family. If he turned his back and he walked away, then the child was rejected. And this happened more times than you think. Mostly to girls. Girls in this culture were seen as a a burden, a financial burden that didn't bring any value to the family. 
And so many times the dad would get up and walk away. Can you imagine this? Walk away from his own child. And, and if the child was born with some kind of issue, the father would just get up and he would just walk away. Well, what would happen to the child? They would take the child to the marketplace called the Agora. And they had a spot. They literally had a spot in this culture where you would drop unwanted children off. And people would come by through the marketplace and they would pick a child. But did they pick the child to, to adopt the child to be in their family? No, that's not what happened to these children. These children were picked up and they were raised to be slaves. They were, they were raised to be prostitutes, to be sex slaves for the rest of their life. To be adopted in the first century meant that you got the family name. It meant that you sat at the family table and ate with the rest of the family. It meant that you had the family inheritance. <laughs> it also meant that the old life that you once knew was now gone because you had your brand new life with your brand new family. Can I explain something to you? That's what Jesus did for you. He adopted you into the family and now you have a brand new name. Now you have uh, the opportunity to sit at the great banquet table of God from every tribe and every race and every nation. Now you have a great inheritance. My goodness, one day we're going to be walking on streets of gold. And the old has gone, hasn't it? And the new has come. You are adopted into the family of God. You were cast aside. And God said, I choose that child to be in my family. I read a story this past week by Lee Strobel. And it's about a, a Korean woman. This was during the, the Korean War. A lot of American military had relationships with the Korean women. And these women would get pregnant. And the soldiers would head back home to the United States. And they would leave the woman with the child to fend for themselves. Well, in this time period in Korea, mixed relationships like this were not looked favorably upon. And so these mothers and their children were ostracized from society because the children had a lighter skin color, they had curly hair. And so no one wanted anything to do with them. And they were made fun of, they were picked on, they didn't get the same opportunities as everybody else. Many women just abandoned their children at birth and just walked away from them because of the disgrace. Well, there was one particular woman who had a relationship with an American soldier. She got pregnant. He went back to the States, leaving her there. And for the next seven years, she goes through hell on earth. Her family rejects her. Her friends reject her. She's doing everything in her power to try to raise her child. And everybody in that society is rejecting the child as well. Finally, the mom has had enough. And she releases the child out into the streets and says to the kid, seven years old, I don't ever want to see you again. Now, it would be one thing if this happened occasionally. It happened thousands and thousands of times. Thousands and thousands of children were rejected in this manner. And they lived in the streets. They lived and slept under the bridges. It was a horrific thing that they did during this time period. Well, this girl somehow, someway survives the next two years uh, going uh, living in the streets. And she's finally uh, accepted in an orphanage. Now, she's the oldest child that's there. She's nine years old. 
And word has it that there's an American couple that's coming in to adopt one of the Korean baby boys there in the orphanage. And everybody was so excited at the prospect of one of these children actually having a life. So you know what that nine-year-old little girl did? She made certain that all the little baby boys were, were cleaned up and ready to go to be presented to this couple. This is what she writes about that moment. She said, it was like Goliath had come back to life. I saw that man with his huge hands lift up each baby, and I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face, and I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. Then he saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now, let me tell you, I was nine years old. I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me, and I was full of scars. I wasn't a pretty sight. But the man came over to me and rattled away in English, and I looked up at him. Then he took this huge hand of his, and he laid it on my face. He was saying, in effect, I want this child. Here's what blows me away. God peers beyond the sinfulness of us. The scars that we put upon ourselves. And he sees the soul that he's placed within us. And it's as if God wants to cup you by the face. And he wants to look you in the eye. And he wants to say, I want you to be a part of my family. My goodness, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die on that cross? Why did Jesus rise again from the dead? So we could be made right with God. So we could become children of God. So that we could be a part of the family of God. Why do we care so much what everybody else says about us? Why do we care so much about what everybody else thinks of us? We are already accepted by the one that matters the most. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Abba Father. Who is for us and we don't have to perform for him. He loves us. With a never-ending love. And that's my third point. Is that we're loved by God. Look at verse 4 again. The passage says God did all this in his love. The pastor of Almighty God Tabernacle Church was working late one Saturday night. I'm guessing he didn't get his message done in time. So he's doing a Saturday night special. And so he's staying up late writing up his message. And uh, it's around 10 o'clock at night. And he thinks, I need to give my wife a phone call. So he picks up the church phone. He docks the numbers of the phone. And the phone rings and rings and rings and rings and rings. And he thinks, that's the strangest thing. Why didn't my wife answer the phone? Maybe she's in bed. So he hung up the phone. He worked on some more things. Now it's about 1030, 1045. He decides to give her a second phone call. So he picks up the phone, dials the number, and she answers immediately. He says, wait a second, I just called you 30, 45 minutes ago. Why didn't you answer the phone then? She said, the phone never rang. Well, they thought that, that was unusual, but didn't think that much about it. Well, he went home, and the next day he preached that message, and, and then that afternoon came, and that was Monday morning. And he found himself back in the office. It's about 10 o'clock in the morning. And the phone begins to ring at the church office, and so he picks up the phone, says, hello. And after a brief pause, the man on the other end said, why did you call me on Saturday night? And the pastor says, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't call anybody on Saturday night. And the man said, no, 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 no. You, you, you must have called me because it, it rang and it rang and it rang and it rang and it rang. But, but I, I never answered the phone. And then the pastor remembered. He said, oh, I'm so sorry. I must have dialed the wrong number. I was calling my wife and I must have called your number and said, I'm awful sorry. There's a long pause. The man said on uh, Saturday night, 
around 10 o'clock, I was contemplating suicide. And before I decided to end my life, I said a little prayer. God, if you're real, if, you're, if you care about me, give me a sign. He said, then the phone started ringing. And I walked over to check the phone, and the caller ID said, Almighty God. Because <laughs> he was from the Almighty God Tabernacle Church. He said, he said, I just got the courage to call you back today. <laughs> Seven billion people alive on planet Earth. Could it be that God had a pastor call the wrong number because he cared about that person's life? And Seven billion people alive on planet Earth right now. And could it be that God has you in this room or watching me on TV or on the stream... Maybe you're on a treadmill. Maybe you're driving your car. Keep looking forward. <laughs> and this is everything you needed to hear. Because you've walked around for a long, long time saying, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. Hey, I'm fine. But I'm not. And deep down inside, you know that you're broken. And isn't it weird that in this moment in time, when you needed to hear this message the very most, that this is the message that you receive, that you're chosen by God, that you're adopted by God, that God loves you with a never-ending love. And isn't it interesting that I wrote this message years ago? And it just so happens that on this particular weekend, that's when this message was to be presented. At just the moment in time for you to hear, what you desperately needed to hear. Let me tell you about God. God can spend his eternity any way he desires. But he chooses to spend his eternity with you. Slap that on your Facebook. Put that on your Instagram. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it wasn't until I understood these three simple truths that my life took a dramatic turn for the good. I was so busy for so long trying to prove myself and trying to act like I'm something that I'm not, so consumed with what everybody else said, everybody else thought. And Lord, you know I still struggle with this. But I'm so glad you chose me. That you wanted me. That you've adopted me to be in your family. That you've given me your name. And I'm going to sit at the great banquet table. With every tribe and every nation. That the old is gone, the new has come. And that one day I'm going to walk on streets of gold. I'm so grateful for your love. A love that isn't dependent upon my performance but a love that overwhelms, that's so high and so wide and so deep. And Lord, I know that if we could just fathom it, if we could just grasp it, it would change everything for us because we would find our security in you. 
And we wouldn't need to act like we're something that we're not. We wouldn't have to wake up in the morning thinking about how can I put my best foot forward to impress as many people as possible. I wouldn't be consumed with what am I going to post on my social media today. I would just be busy about enjoying my time with you. So Lord, for all of us who are weary and heavy laden, for all of us who are just broken, looking for significance in all the wrong things. May we come to our senses in this moment. And may we fall deeply in love with you. And may your opinion of us matter more than the opinion of anybody else. For once in our life, may that finally happen for us so that we could have the freedom that you've always wanted us to experience. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.